Al Jazeera podcast. Ready or not, a new year is underway, and Al Jazeera's correspondents around the world are prepping for the news to come. You never know what's going to happen. Things change in minutes, hours, every day. But what they do know is that there are ongoing wars on Gaza and Ukraine. There's the climate crisis and what could be the biggest election year the world has ever seen. They'll cover it all, and their feelings range from excitement to dread. It's going to be a very busy 2024 in Latin America. In Africa, there is quite an exciting year ahead. 18 general elections taking place. It's time to get my running shoes on because I think this is going to be a very interesting year. Brace yourself. It's 2024. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. When it comes to elections, 2024 is already being dubbed the biggest of all time. In total, countries with more than half the world's population will head to the polls. It's all about elections, elections, and elections in 2024. Some of the world's biggest democracies will be going to the polls. From America... With so many people voting this year, more is at stake for democracy than ever before. And it's the U.S. presidential election in November that might become the biggest spectacle of them all, even though it could be a repeat. I'm pretty sure that we are barreling towards a rematch of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And I'm pretty sure it's one that nobody wants. At least that's what most polling is showing. That's Al Jazeera's White House correspondent, Kimberly Halkett. Though the names she'll be covering in this year's election are familiar, Kimberly tells us she's prepping herself for what's likely to be a pretty wild ride. It's going to be pretty hard to plan this because Donald Trump has 90 criminal charges against him. The Fulton County grand jury indicting former President Donald Trump and 18 of his allies in the Georgia 2020 election case. Trump has been indicted by a federal grand jury regarding the special counsel's probe into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The 44-page indictment alleges that Trump stored boxes of classified documents in several rooms at Mar-a-Lago and some contain the nation's top secrets. He's going to spend a lot of this campaign season tied up in court. That is going to make things super complicated because the judges in all of these cases are going to be dictating how he's going to spend a lot of his time that typically we'd see a candidate campaigning. So how we plan for this is really going to be a big question mark. And... When it comes to Biden, we don't know how he campaigns because it was the pandemic the last time around. And as the Republicans like to say, he spent a lot of time in his basement. We can't lock ourselves up in a basement like Joe does. He has the <laughs> he has the ability to lock himself up. We need to send Joe Biden back to his basement and reverse American decline. <laughs> That's not entirely true, but he wasn't out on the campaign trail in the typical way. So we haven't seen Biden campaigning, 
And Donald Trump is not going to be campaigning in the typical way. So it's really going to be new territory for us. And so I'm excited about this because it is familiar faces, but it's going to be a fresh approach. But as much as she's excited, Kimberly knows the pace of the news may take a toll. I guess in all of this, what I'm not looking forward to is if Donald Trump does win the White House, from a personal aspect, it was hard on me last time. I was exhausted. Uh, I look at myself after four years of covering Donald Trump, the endless tweets, the lack of sleep. I looked 10 years older. I was 40 pounds heavier. I've barely recovered. And to think of having to go through all that again from a selfish standpoint, oh, but I'm up for the challenge. While Kimberly and the United States gear up to vote, it's Asia that will host some of the major elections of the year with big populations and big stakes. My name's Tony Cheng. I'm the Al Jazeera English correspondent based in Bangkok. And I cover news both here in Thailand but across Asia. In Pakistan, there's been a dramatic lead-up to elections that are set for February after unrest that shook the country last year. You've got one prime minister who's already in jail, another one who's just returned from exile. And in Southeast Asia, another major democracy is voting. Indonesia. More than 50% of the electorate is under the age of 40, and the candidates who are already out on the election trail are very much looking towards those voters, targeting them on social media, doing dances on TikTok. should make that an interesting one to watch uh, and certainly to cover as a journalist. But the election that might draw the most international attention is in India, often dubbed the largest democracy in the world. Prime Minister Narendra Modi is going for a third five-year term. Talking to people about what they're hoping for in the elections, I think there are concerns about Nahendra Modi's previous two terms in power that he's taken India down a rather authoritarian path. You need to meet India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. He and his far-right Hindu nationalist party, the BJP, are bent on creating a lost Hindu kingdom. They call it the Hindu Rashtra. They've been in office since 2014, openly championing Hindu nationalist supremacist ideology. There are other people you speak to who are very invigorated by what Mr. Modi has done for India, by taking it onto the world stage, by getting India onto the moon. The Indian Prime Minister entered the room from 7,000 kilometers away. And as soon as the touchdown was successfully complete, the celebrations broke out. People talk about two potential paths for India. One is that Mr. Modi could take a third term. He could continue down that populist pathway, continue to diminish what they feel are very firm democratic institutions. Other people think he might look towards a legacy and that might make him rather more open to change and make a third term a little bit more inclusive. But there are going to be other contentious elections in places like Bangladesh, where we're already, already seeing election violence. 
For over two months, Bangladeshi capital, Dhaka, has been rocked by deadly demonstrations. Across the region, though, what Tony is seeing is a lot of familiar names. And it is, I think when you look at Asia and the number of hierarchies and dynasties that exist here, it does really call into question what democracy actually is in this region. In Africa, that question has been answered very differently in recent years, as Al Jazeera's Nicholas Huck told us. We've had a number of coups specifically in my region, in the Sahel area. The president of Gabon, Ali Bongo, is reported to be under house arrest along with members of his family after army officers claimed they've seized power. Niger's coup leaders seized the moment. Dozens of presidential guard soldiers entrusted with protecting the president overthrew Mohamed Bazoum. And with all those coups that took place, Nick is wondering how many elections will happen in Africa this year. Now, many of those that have taken power in that area have promised to go to the polls and to give power back to the people by organizing elections. Will they keep those promises in 2024? And in the Sahel region, which stretches across Africa from Senegal to Sudan, it's a question of security. We've seen the progress and we'll continue to see the progress and the development of local ISIL and Al-Qaeda affiliate expanding their territory. They control large regions or swath of land equivalent of the size of the United Kingdom. And we're getting reports from analysts and from people on the ground that they're trying to replace the state there. So it'll be interesting to see in 2024 how far they will go. Nick also expects to see the aftermath of those coups continue to reverberate in 2024 when it comes to who holds regional power. There's also the expansion of uh, Russia's sphere of influence on West African countries in the Sahel, notably in countries where France, the former colonial power, has lost ground. We've also seen that African countries are trying to get a seat at the table at the UN, but also in many more uh, international organizations, trying to act as a bloc, specifically, for instance, on the issue of climate change and energy transition. Senegal, where I am, will start uh, pumping liquefied natural gas, and that's going to change the circumstances of this country from poor to rich. This natural gas is something that the Europeans want, but will it be able to provide energy here at home? In Cameroon, in Guinea, Equatorial Guinea, and Gabon, there's a forest that's the second lung of the planet. How much will be done to protect that very important natural resource? Also, the green minerals, the energy transition that's needed for the West uh, in order to uh, build electric cars. Um, much of those minerals come from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Armed groups control these. We're going to see how the elections in the Democratic Republic of Congo in late 2023 affect how this trade is going to happen in 2024. After the break, we hear from some of our journalists focused on the Middle East, Latin America, and Europe about what lies ahead in their regions this year. 
Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula, I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. As we start this new year, much of Al Jazeera and the world's focus will remain on Israel's ongoing war on Gaza. Al Jazeera correspondent Sada Khairat has spent the past few months between Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, the occupied West Bank, and Israel's northern border. She says the turn of the new year isn't really going to change much on the ground. This war isn't over any time soon. It's uh, been announced that they will be going in deeper to the southern parts of the Gaza Strip, that uh, they will be stepping up that fight against Hamas. It's been clear this will go on for months. And the what happens next, um, once the fighting ends, uh, will also take potentially years. Uh, there, This is a story that has an involvement of several other regional countries, as well as attacks that have been carried out, not just from Hamas in Gaza, but also Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed group in southern Lebanon, as well as um, the Houthis in Yemen. So this won't be ending anytime soon. And we're going to be expecting um, a lot more, certainly, I believe, from the international community in putting pressure on Israel to end this. Sara also says she's going to be keeping an eye out for what happens with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, whose political fate many Israelis see as tied to the war. During this war, he hasn't come out actually uh, taking responsibility for what happened on October 7. And as a result, uh, the public is increasingly unhappy. It's been made very clear once this war is over, we will probably see the end of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as his uh, right-wing coalition government. In Latin America... Al Jazeera's editor for the region, Lucia Newman, told us she's looking at a wide range of stories for 2024, including an environmental one, which could affect the whole world's supply of goods. There's the Panama Canal, which is drying up. The worst recorded drought in history is forcing the canal authorities to reduce traffic of giant container ships going between the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans to less than half. Can the Panama Canal, which is considered an engineering wonder of the world when it was built, survive climate change? Lucia is also keeping an eye on Argentina for a story we covered not too long ago on The Take, following the inauguration of a controversial far-right president, Javier Millet. It's anybody's guess what will happen in Latin America's second largest country, where a new libertarian and ultra-conservative president is imposing harsh belt-tightening measures to try to rein in triple-digit inflation. President Javier Millet is threatening to punish protesters who block streets and go on strike. But can he control trade unions who in the past have been able to force out governments for far less? Election season is coming for Latin America, too with a wide cast of characters. 
the controversial president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, will be running for re-election, despite a constitution that forbids it. But the constitutional court will let him run for another five-year term anyway, using a loophole in the law to allow the unquestionably popular president to be re-elected, which it's almost certain that he will. In Panama, no one knows what's going to happen. Former President Ricardo Martinelli has been sentenced to 10 years in prison for corruption. But the question is, can he be re-elected before the courts deal with his very last appeal? Mexico will elect a new president to replace populist Andrés López Obrador. It seems a given that his staunch ally, Claudia Sheinbaum, will win in June. That would make Mexico City's former mayor the first woman president of that country. And there's another election that we will be looking at very, very closely, and that is Venezuela. President Nicolás Maduro has not officially said he will run for another six-year term, but he is expected to do exactly that in the second half of the year. But the biggest question is, who will he be running against? And will the election be fair and free? That's a question that's certain to be asked in Russia's election set for March. It's not difficult to imagine who will win the Russian election. That's Anila Saftar. She's Al Jazeera English's online editor for Europe. It's widely expected to keep Putin in power until 2030, I think. That's kind of a given. And though she's not expecting any surprises with Russia's election results this year, she says there are going to be a lot of interesting stories around it. How the... Russian opposition mobilizes themselves, how protesters maybe take to the streets, how the fallout of that might kind of look like, and also then the international reaction, you know, should Putin succeed again? What does that mean for Europe? What does it mean for the Ukraine war? What does it mean for their relations, the economy, the kind of whole international landscape? Um so I think the responses to the election are more interesting than the election itself. Beyond that, Anila says it's pretty clear where the main focus of coverage in Europe will be. It is always difficult to plan coverage, but in 2024, all eyes are still going to be on the Ukraine war. Given the kind of massive levels of support from Europe for Ukraine, I don't think anyone could have expected that by the end of 2023 that we'd be suddenly questioning, you know, how much longer and how much further can we support Ukraine in terms of aid? I think we we now have the beauty of seeing what our audience is interested in. And it would come as no surprise that it's, you know, is this going to be the year that the Ukraine war ends? If there is a deal, what's that going to look like? And Anila says the focus is ultimately all about the people bearing the brunt of the conflict. When the war started, the Ukrainians were fleeing in massive droves and many of them have resettled and, you know, have had a positive experience. In some countries, it's less positive and there's a feeling that they want to return to their own country. So if the war is to come to an end, you know, what's going to happen to all of those people? How is that transition and what's kind of resettling in a war-torn country going to feel like? And the way we'll do that is by, as we always do, you know, talking to the people that are doing it. They're at the centre of our stories. But in the meantime, you know, we'll keep telling the stories of people who are living in an active war zone. 
Looking forward, Anila says she has mixed feelings about the year ahead. It's quite difficult to feel positive about anything with two major wars ongoing and news is rarely an upbeat business. But what we are excited about as editors is just telling human stories, working with journalists on the ground on ambitious projects that connect the dots, looking at how politics affects people. And that's The Take. We want to hear what stories you're looking out for in 2024. Let us know on social media. We're at AJE Podcasts on Twitter slash X and Facebook. This episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra with Miranda Lynn, Amy Walters, Sari Al-Khalili, Nagin Oliayi, David Enders, Chloe Kaylee, Zaina Bezer, Sonia Bagad, and Khalid Sultan. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Joe Plord makes this episode. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>